A few weeks ago, I decided to walk around the museum where I work and see how much skin there really is on the walls. It might be less than you think, especially if your formative memory of museums is from age nine, or you are nine, in which case, where are your parents? But still, there are plenty of naked bodies in museums. You might even call them nude. In one gallery of Renaissance art, eight of the 32 artworks have naked people. Nine if you count the furry guy, a so-called wild man, which you probably should. There's a naked witch riding a goat. There's Saint Sebastian, naked except for all the arrows. There are six naked guys standing around an outdoor bath, one of them positioned so his privates are obscured by a water faucet, which used to be called a... Well, Google it. Elsewhere in the museum, there are your standard-issue Greek gods and goddesses doing godly stuff in the buff. And there are your standard-issue anonymous naked women in the bath, at the beach, on couches. Somewhere in the collection is a photograph of Henri Matisse, the avant-garde French artist, in his studio in 1939. He's about 70 years old, with a little white beard and glasses, wearing a tie and vest, sitting in a chair with a pen and notepad. He looks like Dr. Freud in a therapy session. But no, he's sketching a woman a few feet in front of him, kneeling in some awkward position, her arms behind her head, completely nude. As long as humans have made art, they have made art of naked humans. But looking at people on natural has, in fact, almost never come naturally. This is The Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. The Object is made possible by generous support from Ameriprise Financial proud supporter of the Minneapolis Institute of Art and committed to the future of art and culture in the communities they serve. Ameriprise Financial, helping people feel confident about their financial future since 1894. Today, a story of nudes, dudes, and prudes. A story of changing values, changing gods, and of course, changing clothes. Even as underneath we remain exactly the same. I'm Tim Gearing. In 1956, a man named Kenneth Clark comes out with a book called The Nude, A Study in Ideal Form. It's actually hard to imagine a more buttoned-down human being becoming an expert on nudity. Clark is English, with receding hair slicked back over a high forehead. He is, in 1956, the former director of Britain's National Gallery, a habitual wearer of three-piece suits, knighted at age 35, literally living in a castle. But he knows his nudes. When the book comes out on January 1st, like the New Year's baby in his birthday suit, Clark becomes maybe the most prominent champion of the naked body since Hugh Hefner. In 
Around the same time, Clark becomes the head of Britain's first commercial television network. And soon enough, he's on TV himself. The man who can explain what all this skin is doing in art. The nude, he says, is the highest achievement of Western art. A, quote, means of affirming the belief in ultimate perfection. And he's pretty clear about where he thinks the nude began. It is an art form, he writes, invented by the Greeks. Just as opera is an art form invented in 17th century Italy. It's ironic that he compares nudity to opera, the one art form people still dress up for. But his argument is clear. The nude is just as respectable as the most respectable art form we have. So, is he right? Let's go all the way back to ancient Greece, two and a half thousand years ago. Democracy is taking root in Athens, right? Zeus and the other gods are safely ensconced on Mount Olympus. Olympic athletes are running, jumping, throwing stuff. And then, at some point, the men doing all this running, jumping, and throwing, and it was only men, start taking their clothes off. All of them. No one really knows why. There's a story about a runner who decides to strip down, and when he wins his race, everyone's like, hey, let's be like that guy. There's another story about a runner who doesn't strip down, and when he trips over his loincloth and loses his race, everyone's like, let's not be like that guy. In any case, exercising in the buff becomes a kind of ritual. Guys start going to the gym, gymnos, literally meaning naked, with nothing but some olive oil and a scraper. Oil up, throw some sand on your skin for grip or sunscreen or something, and wrestle some dudes. When you're done, scrape off all the goop. Someone might even come along and collect it and sell it as, quote, boy oil. The instant fix for anyone too old, lazy, or embarrassed to hit the gym himself. No kidding. Well, none of this exactly explains why the Greeks start making nude statues, but they do. At first, only of male gods and heroes, and then, eventually, of goddesses, like Aphrodite. Certainly, it seems the gods get naked for the same reason the athletes do, because they're powerful and beautiful, and disciplined enough to stay powerful and beautiful. All things the ancient Greeks really admire. Clark concludes his book with the idea that, quote, the Greeks perfected the nude in order that man might feel like a god. But you could also say they perfected the nude so the gods might feel like man. The Greeks are humanists, after all. They have made their gods in the image of themselves. And as the people change, so do their gods. You can see this, well, in their phalluses. One of the earliest sculptures of a Greek hero that we know of is this three-inch figure of Ajax, the strongest of the Greeks. He's not only nude, he has a huge erection, which is awkward because he's also falling on his sword in suicide. And it's hard to do that when... Well, the figure is so crude that for years this tiny sculpture is locked away in the British Museum's secretum 
cupboard number 55, along with all the other not-safe-for-work objects. But eventually, the phalluses of heroes get smaller and smaller on Greek statues, until they're actually smaller than you'd expect. Not because the gods are changing, right? But because the Greeks are. They start valuing self-control, self-discipline. And one way to show this is to stop having your idealized selves standing around looking visibly aroused. So, there's Hercules, for instance, looking like he's just gotten out of a very, very cold lake. Now, Clark is pretty clear that being nude is different from being naked. In fact, it's the very first chapter of his book, called The Naked and the Nude. Nude is a visible manifestation of perfection. Naked is pitiful, crude, quote, huddled and defenseless, as Clark puts it. There's an etching in the collection of the Minneapolis Institute of Art called Man is Born Naked, from a series called The Misery of Human Life. Made in 1563, at the height of the Renaissance, And it is, in fact, a picture of a miserable-looking naked woman with a naked baby, surrounded by animals that look much more comfortable. And there's some lines of verse in the picture. Birds, fish, trees, and all animals are all provided and clothed by nature. Man alone is left completely naked and suffers a thousand travails. Wow. The ancient Greeks don't really have a problem with nudity or nakedness. They strip down at parties to have sex and drink wine out of cups shaped like breasts, and not necessarily in that order. They run naked in the streets every year to honor Athena. They get naked a lot, actually, even if they aspire to be nude. But in the mid-1950s, when Clark is writing, things are different, right? The world has put itself through two wars in which millions of human bodies were stripped naked and brutalized, beaten, blown up, burned, as though they were ugly and disposable, as though humans were ugly and disposable. Clark says, no, humans are beautiful. The body is beautiful. It has long been an object of myth and wonder, a symbol of harmony. And let's not forget that again. If the nude was perfected by the Greeks, so people might feel like gods, Clark writes, in a sense, this is still its function. For although we no longer suppose that God is like a beautiful man, we still feel close to divinity in those flashes of self-identification when, through our own bodies, we seem to be aware of a universal order. The body had been scorned before, right? In the Middle Ages, or the Dark Ages, if you like. When Rome goes Christian, along with the rest of Europe, the nude basically disappears in art for a thousand years, except for the occasional naked body, broken or twisted in agony or evil. Christianity embarrasses the nude into hiding. And then, 
slowly but surely, as the Renaissance reawakens the humanism of the classical age. The nude tiptoes back into the spotlight. Like, hello, I'm a body. It's what makes us people. Nothing to be embarrassed about. Botticelli, Da Vinci, Michelangelo. They're all hanging out in Florence in the Medici Sculpture Garden, the Medici Library, studying the art and culture of the ancient Greeks, including nudes. Botticelli puts Venus naked on the half-shell sometime in the 1480s. And suddenly it's like, okay, we're doing this again. But Italy isn't ancient Greece, right? It's the heart of Christianity. And so, even at the height of the Renaissance, you can't just put naked people in your art and expect no one to say anything, even if you say they're nude. Let's take St. Sebastian, for example, the martyr shot through with arrows. In the Renaissance, he becomes this young, virile dude, usually shown only with underpants, an often homoerotic image that's already pushing it. But some artists take him even further. There's this silver relief, gilded with gold, from about 1510, made by the artist Moderno, where the Virgin Mary is holding baby Jesus, surrounded by saints, all of them clothed. And off to the side is St. Sebastian, letting it all hang out, nude except for his sandals. Yeah, that takes some explaining. But artists defend even the most ostentatious nudity, rare ostentatious nudity, as a way of using bodily perfection to show heroism and courage. To be beautiful, they say, is to be virtuous. Besides, they say, hardly anyone is going to see it. A few years ago, the Getty Center in Los Angeles stages a show about the Renaissance nude. It's gorgeous and strange. There's a titillating Virgin Mary, a nearly naked Jesus, and of course, St. Sebastian. More than 100 objects by da Vinci, Michelangelo, Raphael. And as the show explains, you were never supposed to see most of them. Or any of them. That totally nude St. Sebastian sculpture, it was probably made for a patron who was really into the ancient Greeks, a humanist thinker of some kind, and was probably only seen in its day by a few elite people who, like the patron, were totally fine with it. None of them could have imagined that this artwork, like most of the nudes in museums today, would be seen hundreds of years later by hundreds of thousands of people, out with their families. Among the images in the Getty Show is a series of Bathsheba, one of those biblical characters whose story is not going to change your spiritual life, but for some reason ends up in a lot of art. Well, here's the reason. Bathsheba is taking a bath when King David sees her from his palace roof and decides to have sex with her. She gets pregnant and 
King David blames it on her husband because, oh yeah, she's married. Then King David has the husband sent to battle as cannon fodder so he can marry the widow. God isn't happy about any of this and kills the baby. But let's be honest, that's not what interests the artist. It's all the bathing and adultery, right? So here are these images of Bathsheba, flirty and fully nude, tucked inside a French version of the Book of Hours. And if you're rich enough and literate enough to own one of these little Catholic books of prayer, then between your pleas to the Virgin Mary in heaven, I beseech thee, O undefiled one, you can reflect on some earthier desires. It's the 16th century version of tucking a playboy into a consumer reports. No one else has to know. By the 1600s and 1700s, the religious and classical context for nudity is getting as thin as the clothes, but it's still there. Rubens is painting ancient themes like the Judgment of Paris, essentially a beauty contest, a perfect opportunity to show some flesh. Rubens has even narrowly defined the perfect female figure as, quote, an abdomen which is slightly curved and decreasing downwards, buttocks which are not stretched or hanging, but round, ample, firm, and fleshy, a small womb, thighs that are plump, Kenneth Clark calls Rubens' paintings a form of Christian praise. In fact, even the most plainly erotic artworks, the stuff that makes you sweat a little under your three-piece suit, Clark is good with it. The only nudity he doesn't like is if it isn't erotic at all. Quote, No nude, however abstract, he writes, should fail to arouse in the spectator some vestige of erotic feeling even if it be only the faintest feeling. And if it does not do so, it is bad art and false morals. Of course, in 1956, Clark isn't too concerned that most nudes have been made by men for men, of women. In a letter to an American art historian, Clark notes his, quote, undisguised admiration for the girls. Here he is describing a 1752 painting by Francois Boucher of a young woman naked on a sofa. Quote, Freshness of desire has seldom been more delicately expressed than by her round young limbs as they sprawl with undisguised satisfaction on the silken cushions of her sofa. By art, Boucher has enabled us to enjoy her with as little shame as she is enjoying herself. One false note, and we should be, embarrassingly, back in the world of sin. Wow. (laughs) Nudity is great, Clark seems to say, as long as everyone's having fun. But at a certain point, in the early 1800s, people start to wonder... Are we still having fun looking at naked men and women, or not? For centuries, the male nude especially has been held up as a symbol of lofty and heroic ideals, right? 
an avatar of classical truth and beauty. Nudity in art has been different from nudity in life, free from all those real-world issues like prostitution or venereal disease. But suddenly, in France and England especially, the decency of the nude starts to come under suspicion. In 1799, Jacques-Louis David, the most heroic of French painters, right, unveils his intervention of the Sabine women. David has been thinking about this painting for four years, starting when he was in jail during the Revolution, a picture of women being abducted by the founders of Rome and their soldiers. He says it's a call to peace and love after the terrors of the Revolution. But a lot of people focus on the fact that the women are clothed in the painting, while the men are not. The men are completely nude, except for their swords and shields. It's suddenly so unsettling that David scrambles to write a pamphlet in his defense called On the Nudity of My Heroes. For years, he argues, the male nude is, quote, signified antiquity. Nudity was the guarantor of art's aesthetic power to ameliorate a stratified and fractured society. The healing power of nudity? Well, maybe. But in 1799, people just want to get these men some pants. Over the next hundred years, suspicion only grows, even as art has pushed the boundaries. In 1880, the French painter Gustave Caillebotte creates a picture called Nude on a Couch, now at the Minneapolis Institute of Art, which is exactly what it sounds like. A young woman stretched across a divan, naked, legs splayed, one hand across her breast, like she just woke up from a nap. People look at this painting of a woman doing nothing more noble than lying on a couch and think, no, thank you. And Kaibot's painting is never exhibited or sold in his lifetime. A few years later, he paints a man just out of the bathtub, his naked rear facing the viewer as he towels off. In 1888, when Kaibot is invited to show at an avant-garde exhibition in Brussels, he submits the painting. But this picture, too, becomes suspect. Eventually, it's tucked away and only a few people are allowed to see it. If nudes are to bring us closer to the gods, people think, what kind of gods are these people worshipping? Let's go back to, well, all the way back, to Genesis, Adam and Eve. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked. And I hid myself. And the Lord said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree, whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? Adam, of course, says it was the woman who made him do it. But the point is, in losing their innocence, they realize they're naked and are now ashamed. Now, in the late 1800s, as Europe is becoming ashamed again, 
Laws about clothing and sexuality are tightening. And gay men and others who find themselves on the outside, looking in, begin to find affinity in ancient Greece. As a time before Christianity pushed their desires into the realm of sin and fear. In 1877, the wealthy German Wilhelm von Gloden moves to Sicily and eventually begins making photographs of young men, embracing in gardens of classical statuary or cavorting among ruins, completely nude or barely clad in togas and olive wreaths. The photos find their way around the world to the rich and famous and powerful hundreds of whom make the trip to their origin. The kings of Spain and England, the composer Richard Strauss, the inventor Alexander Graham Bell, pilgrims of pleasure who come to Van Gloden's villa by the sea to witness the body without shame, to be transported one way or another to a place where the gods are naked and proud. Oscar Wilde visits in the summer of 1898, having just spent two years in jail for gross indecency with men. He had loved the young Lord Alfred Douglas, whom he called so Greek and gracious. And after suing Alfred's mother for calling him a sodomite, he was put on trial himself, right, three times. Quote, I think that the realization of oneself is the prime aim of life, Wilde had told the court in 1895. And to realize oneself through pleasure is finer than to do it through pain. I am, on that point, entirely on the side of the ancients, the Greeks. It is a pagan idea. Wilde stays with Van Gloden for a month. He helps with the shoots, arranging the men in the sun. And when he leaves, he makes room in a trunk and fills it with photos. This has been the Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art, and made possible with support from Ameriprise Financial. I'm Tim Gearing. New episodes are coming out every month now. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Subscribe so you never miss an episode. And thanks very much for listening.